Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode six of Daffy's Roundtable. Before we go on, let me just apologize for not uploading anything over the past couple of weeks. I was having some technical difficulties with the recording software, but we're back. Okay, and today's guest is another good friend of mine. Uh, we actually go fishing and herping together very frequently. Uh, but on the reptile side of things, we will be discussing his reptile room today, which is largely concentrated on leopard geckos. Um, we'll also be talking about his experiences in rescuing and rehabilitating I hope I said that word right, uh, of reptiles. And uh, make sure you stick around to the end because he did grow up in Brazil. So we'll also be talking about his experiences herping in Brazil. Uh, everybody, please welcome Derek Bird of Bird's Eye Herping. <laughs> Mr. Derek, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Thank you for coming Good. on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, uh, been a while coming. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We've been planning for too long. A little bit. All right. I'm going to get right into it, bro. Yep. Tell everybody, what species are you currently keeping at home? Uh, doing a quick head count. One sec. <laughs> so I have the seven Leos, which you kind of see the tanks behind me there. Uh, I have two Gargs, a Lichianus, a Bowers Chameleon Gecko, two Cresties, a Knobtail, an African Fat Tail, and then my girlfriend and I actually co-own another Bowers and a Ball Python. And I actually have a new animal coming in tomorrow. Uh, actually, a former breeder from Reptile Rainforest. It's a, an annery corn snake. Very so nice. So that's Very coming nice. in tomorrow. And are you also planning to breed this annery corn snake? or? Mm, may maybe. Maybe we'll see. I, I've always wanted an annery when it comes to a corn snake. So I'm having it just to kind of have it. Uh, I'm going to be getting some babies from him in the future as well. So maybe getting into breeding. But other things... Kind of, kind of busy right now with breeding the Leos. I'm getting into Gargs coming uh, this winter. So other things on the table first. Nice. I like it. Lots of projects going on. I love it. Always busy. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, okay. So before we talk more about your reptile room, yep. um, we said we were going to focus this podcast quite a bit on leopard geckos. I'm all for so it. So I'm going to start from there. Um, all right. By the way, to everybody listening, we're focusing this on leopard geckos because... Actually, why don't you tell them? Why don't you give them your uh, your experience with leopard geckos and just your experience reptile keeping in general? Um, I started off with leopard geckos. Uh, when it comes to actually owning them, you kind of references a little bit in the intro. I grew up in Brazil, so obviously no leopard geckos there. Fell in love with reptiles there, but when I came to Canada, it's the first one I ever owned. And I still have her. She's, she's behind me there. She's turning 11 in about a month. Very nice. So I've had her for a little while now. I've had her for just over 10 years. And that's what made me kind of fall in love with the species. There's a lot more to them than people realize. People think it's a leopard gecko. They live in a 10-gallon tank. They don't do anything. And then they, they're they kind of just there. But there's a lot of personality involved. You can do some really elaborate um, habitats for them. Like my, my oldest one there, I have a 40-gallon breeder tank for her, all excavator. But it's also all live plants, live succulents, full everything. Uh, so you can get really in depth. She has a ton of personality. So like when I walk into the room, she'll kind of just, I say starfishes. So she just sticks herself right against the glass, like with her belly right there, and just stares at me like this, waiting. And she'll just follow you throughout the room. And it's gone to the point where all of them do that now. So cool. they're all. I walk in, they all come right out. They all love to come out. There's a, each of them has different personality. They're they're super endearing, and if you're caring for them right, you you have a pretty unique pet. People, they get overlooked a lot because they're so common, but there's a lot more to them than people realize. 
I 100% agree with that, and I say the same thing about Crested mm-hmm. Geckos. And exactly. I, I once you have them for a while, they really do start to have personality. Um, they do. I see the same thing with my Cresties. They come out like they starfish as well. They come out right yep. up to the window. Um, very cool, man. Um, I figured since we were talking about this before, we do get into the Leos. Um, so me and Derek work together in a pet store. Um, you want to maybe talk about how you ended up there and were you keeping leopard geckos before you ended up at the pet store or how did that go for you? Uh, yeah, so I got hired at that pet store in 2015. I left just uh, just last year, but I got hired there in 2015, um, had leopard geckos for about five years before that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so well before that. Uh so this pet store, they opened up a branch near where I live. So I applied there, got hired there, and I was there for about two and a half years. But that was really more of a, it's more focused on products. There's not a lot of live animals, a lot of just food, care, tanks, things like that. Eventually got transferred to the larger, the larger one of the two. And that's, that came with the actual live reptiles, a lot more in depth. That's kind of what I was aiming for. Uh, ended up running the reptile department there for a little while uh you got hired right at the beginning of that i believe that's when i got hired yes yeah it was right right when right when that happened and um no so i i went in there specifically looking for some experience in the reptile field i at the at the first location was a lot of dog cat food a lot of just again just general product got to transfer the bigger one got to specialize a lot more um i had probably three or four reptiles when I first got hired in 2015. Uh, but then I would transfer to the bigger location, got way more into the exotics. I'd always loved them, but it kind of gave me that reason and that excuse to. Uh, so I have... And then you just get addicted. Uh, I have 20, <laughs> I think I have 22 right now. Okay. Uh, if you're counting, if you're counting the, the, the five fish, I have 22, 23 tomorrow. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And, and, and growing. And oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. This is nowhere near done. I'm, you, you saw my reptile room not long ago. I'm right in the middle of transitioning everything, getting a new rack. So there's going to be a lot more growth in this year alone. I'm looking forward to it. Which I'm excited about. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. Back to the leopard geckos then. Um, give us a, a brief rundown. Where do they come from? Um, what areas of the world? How are the temperatures over there? Yeah. yeah. So they come from a lot of dry arid middle eastern areas like afghanistan they're found pretty commonly so that's kind of where they like to hang out um they were actually found they were introduced in 76 so mid to late 70s they were discovered uh and brought over to north america and in in the mid 80s they actually had a captive breeding program starting up in the u.s and they're actually known as the first domesticated lizard so oh they are yeah, they are. They are uh, known as the first ones that were domesticated. Well, as domesticated, I guess, as you can get with a reptile. Uh, so I guess a lot of the more common ones have been the thing for actually bringing them into the hobby in the first place. Um, but yeah, when it comes to their setup and things like that, you just mimic where they come from. A lot of people give them heat lamps, which I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, you can. They're dead to be totally fine. But when it comes to heating, something from underneath is much more beneficial for them because they'll actually soak up that heat through their belly and not necessarily through basking on rocks or... exactly so just like where they come from it's dry it's air there's a lot of rocky areas so instead of basking they'll actually go out and they'll sit on these places that are a bit more warmer that's how absorb their heat so you never want to mimic that here it's um again a lot of people use heat bulbs and they can be fine on it but it's not the most ideal thing out in the wild they'll wait until dusk dawn because they're actually 
one of the misconceptions about them, they're not nocturnal animals. Um, they've been advertised nocturnal animals since ever, really. A lot of people saw them as nocturnal animals. A lot of people think they're nocturnal. Since they were yeah, so they are actually what you call crepuscular. So dawn and dusk is when they like to come out. So again, dawn and dusk in the wild, they'll go. They'll actually wait until the sun's not quite up yet or just down enough that it's not hitting on them. And all these rocks are still really warm. So they'll go and that's how absorb their heat. Interesting. And yeah. for that reason, they don't really require UVB since they're not technically out when the sun is out either. So... That's a bit controversial. I, I'm a big fan of UV, UVB for them. All of mine have UVB. Okay. It's not necessary exactly. A lot of people have been housing them, again, since the 80s. Totally fine. No UVB, no lights of any sort. I think they benefit a lot from it. So my guys, what I'll see is actually they're not out soaking in UVB like you would see a beardy or something like that being out. But you'll see them just have a foot or like tip of their tail or just their nose sticking out of their cave. And that's actually how they're absorbing them. And I've actually noticed a lot of benefits in my guys once I introduced UVB about five years ago. Interesting. Yeah. What so kind it's, of benefits? Uh, so I actually noticed better diet for the better eating habits. Better eating responses. I've, um, yeah, I've done a fair bit of uh, rescues when it comes to Leos. And I always notice such a benefit when it comes to UVB for them. Uh, their appetite kicks up. They're able to digest food a bit better. When you have the, the UVB and the calcium together, it helps them just grow much better, especially as babies. Again, rescues, a lot of times they'll come in really skinny. Their bones will actually be a little soft, if that makes any sense at all, because normally they have no calcium intake whatsoever. And a lot of times people are feeding crickets, high in phosphorus, takes away from the calcium intake of the lizard to begin with. So the UVB combined with calcium will help with baby growth, rescues when it comes to actually back to being healthy and with a stable skeleton. Um, and my guys, again, just it helps them process their food much better. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then so the areas they come from, are they more sandy areas, more rocky areas? Because I always hear this debate when it comes to leopard geckos is you shouldn't put them on sand. You should keep them on like repti carpet or excavator clay. Um, why is it that they can handle sand in the wild if they do and not in captivity? I know this is a very controversial topic, but um, do you have an opinion on it? Yeah, so um, in the wild, it's primarily rocky. A lot of rocky area. There is some sand. So they can survive on sand in captivity. Again, I tend to avoid it. Uh, Impaction is a huge problem with them where they eat too much sand while they're striking crickets or butterworms that they're eating that day. And it'll slowly build up in their stomach because they can't digest it. Um, now, some people say you can do it, and you technically can if you want to have it on sand because they will burrow a little bit. Um, so... If you want a tong feed or make sure they're eating out of a dish specifically so that there's no risk of them intaking that sand, I avoid it. I find it a bit too much of a hassle. and a, It's a concern that doesn't need to be there, in my opinion. You don't have to worry about that if you can avoid it. So I use rutted carpet when they're breeding. Sometimes I use rutted carpet. For the most part, they're on excavator. Because it still lets them, yeah, it still lets them get into their burrows, things like that, which they like to do. But I'm not worried about any kind of impaction. Awesome. So they can burrow in excavator clay then? Well, I'll, I'll make artificial burrows for them. So okay, what so I'll do is, yeah, I'll make that artificial burrow, and I won't fill it with sand. Again, it's too much of a worry for me. Um, they can do a lot of anything as simple as cocoa soil. Honestly, they, it's more digestible than sand, so if something happens, which is doubtful, then they'll be, they'll be able to pass it. Uh, but, yeah, I'll use that. Or Arcadia actually has an 
arid specific soil, which I love, and that they will burrow into. Awesome. And again, Very not cool. a risk of impaction there. So are they Arcadia soil or something a little more um, digestible then is? Yeah, because sand, what happens when you pour water on sand? It clumps, right? Same thing in the, in the digestive tract. Something like the soil, they'll pass through. If okay, something tends to happen, sense. and again, I use it exclusively in a burrow that they'll be hanging out in, and it's not super deep, I know they're not eating in there. I'm not too worried about it. Okay. Hmm. Very cool. How about breeding? Do you... Um, do you keep your males and your females together? Do you separate them and then just introduce them for pairing? And what temperature do you incubate eggs at? What do you use as a lay box? Yeah. So I don't tend to keep them together if they're not if they're not breeding. Cohabitation in general can has it have its own risk. Not just Leos. That's almost any reptile. Okay. Cohabiting, you can have problems unless you have something like morning geckos or long tails or something. They're fine together. But a lot of the gecko species, you just can't. Agreed. Um. People say you can do with stuff like crusties, and technically you can, but again, I don't, I don't see the reason behind it. So I'll pair them when they're going to be breeding, and even then, I like to do a bit of a slow introduction. So if there's a pair that haven't met each other yet, I'll actually put the male in with the female, but I'll leave them in like a clear container okay. so that there is a barrier between them, but they can kind of get used to each other, and I can kind of see how that goes. Uh, so far, I haven't had any issues, but I do it just in case. Um, when it comes to incubation, it depends what, what gender you're going for. So anywhere from 80 to 90 degrees is the standard. Uh, lower temperatures, around 80, 83, around there, you're, you're going to get a lot of females, primarily. You get in the mid-80s, 85 to 87, you're going to get a healthy combination of the two. Higher into the 80s, into like when you hit 90, you're going to get mostly boys. Okay, so they are um, temperature, the sex is dependent on the sex. Um, on the temperature you incubate them at. Absolutely, which actually makes it really convenient for breeding. Of course. Yes, yeah. that's so, very cool. super helpful. I've tried to test it out with uh, crested geckos, but haven't found any correlation yet. Not the same? Not, no, I mean, not to my knowledge. I might not be going cold no. enough or hot enough for that. Yeah. Um, when it comes to what I'm using, Reptile Hatch by Rapashi okay. is what I use. Uh, you can use stuff like Vermiculite, but it doesn't deal as well, I think, with higher humidity, because you want them to be around that 85 to 95 humidity range, which might throw people off because they are an arid, dry animal, but incubation, yeah. you want it quite humid. Is that because they burrow their eggs so it's more humid underground? Yeah, exactly. Okay, very interesting. And so the Repti Hatch, if you let it soak, it tells you exactly how humid it is. So it gets a bit darker or lighter depending on how wet it is. You can actually, just by looking into the incubator, you can see how humid your your um, incubation media is. Awesome. So that way, I don't like to touch or go near the eggs if I don't have to. Right. Uh, of course. So that way, yeah, I can just look at it, and if it's dry, I'll be able to see it right away. So I don't have to go in there, open it up, feel around, mess with anything if I don't have to. Yeah, right. Yeah, I just started using the, the Repti hash that you gave me, actually, and uh, yeah, I'm already liking it a lot more. Oh, it's a, it's an awesome product, and you buy like a five pound thing of it, and you have it for so long. It, right, and it's reusable, so. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, shout out Rapashi. <laughs> oh, they are oh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so besides them being the first um, domesticated lizard in captivity, what do you think makes leopard geckos very popular as a as a first pet? 
Uh, a lot of the time it's a kid wanting a reptile, right? And for leopard gecko, especially when they're babies, you see like the big bulging eyes that are adorable. And they're, yeah, they're relatively handleable. Uh, all the ones I have, I'll hang out if, uh, if I'm watching TV or gaming or whatever. I'm just hanging out after work. Those, I'll have one on my shoulder and they just hang out. Awesome. So they become quite handleable. Uh, they're easy to take care of, very minimal setup. Anything like a, a 20 long is a standard minimum for an adult. I would never go anything smaller. If you have a baby, it can go into a 10-gallon for a while. Um, so they, they don't take up a ton of space. You can okay. be like me and get a 40 breeder for yours because why not? I like to overkill <laughs> things. She's happy. I'm happy. Uh, but they don't take up a lot of space. They're handleable. They're very easy to maintain. Uh, people don't realize they do live for a very long time. They go about What's 20, 25 time? years. Yeah, 20, 25 years. So they, so they can go for a while. Like I, I got my first one. I was 13. I've now graduated high school, college, and she's barely middle aged. Like that's it's just yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, such as still gonna be yeah. around for a while. Right. I absolutely, and and I'm happy she is. I love her to death. But right. they do live for quite a while. People don't tend to realize that. That's why you see a lot of them rehoming. If you're going through like Kijiji or or Facebook Marketplace, you'll see them everywhere. Because they don't realize how long they live. When it comes right. to being popular, easy to maintain, they are super adorable, very handleable, very personable. Again, once you have them for a while, you really start to see individual personalities. So I think that's why they've, they've stuck for so long. Very cool. And actually, the whole Kijiji and Facebook Marketplace is something that I would do mm -hmm. want to touch up on. But okay. we'll get to that after um, a few more questions. Um, so you mentioned you want to talk about the Enigma syndrome for leopard geckos. So what yes. is it? How does it affect them? And how common is it? And what causes it? Yeah, so it's the Enigma syndrome because it's primarily found in the Enigma morph, right. which is, and when it comes to genes, it's actually dominant genes. So if you breed out an Enigma, you're going to have an Enigma. And One second, I'm going to look up here. Um, is yeah. there a specific, a specific uh, morph that contains this uh, syndrome? Yeah, it's called or, the Enigma. That is the morph name. So that is the morph name. Okay. Yeah, that's why it's named the Enigma because it's named after that specific morph. And they are quite nice looking. Um, so people fall for it. They see the nice, uh, the nice coloration, and they, those eyes are captivating. But th they can cause quite the problem. Oh. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Which one it, are we talking about here? I'm going to share my screen real quick. Sure. All right. Which one? Okay. So these are all Enigma something. So Enigma is used in a lot of other genes. Oh, okay. uh, something like a pure enigma. See that the top row, third in from the left. That's a fairly standard enigma, I'd say. Okay, so it's not um, visually visible on them. Not always, but if if you close that image, for example, okay. um, on the left there, that has the it's enigma not gene. That no, not that guy there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, you can call that one a high orange, I think. Yeah. Uh, but top left. Orange. Yes. So this the one. very first photo, that one has the Enigma gene in it. And so you can see what Enigma does when it's together with another gene. So that one looks like it might be Enigma tangerine, something like that. And what it does is? It makes them gorgeous. See that? It's very that distinct pattern. So on the boat, on the left gecko on the right, you have those four kind of bubbles that come in from the sides of the gecko. Right. And on it's orange in the center it kind of goes back to a pale. Okay. Yeah, if you close that one, I saw another good example of that exact thing. 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, second row furthest on the right. So that one's a high yellow enigma. Same kind of deal. It, it, it puts that pail in with that darker color, so there's a lot of contrast. Very cool. So they are very, very nice looking. They have those red eyes, kind of like an albino, but a little bit deeper. So they are they can make things look really, really nice, but there's a lot of neurological problems when it comes to them, but they're bred out because they can make things look so beautiful and people can charge a fortune for them. Okay, So. But but the effect of having the enigma is? So it could be, I, I relate it a lot to the spider gene in ball pythons because the spider gene is a bit more commonly known throughout okay. general reptile world. So it's where, a neurological uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a neurological problem. And some of the effects can actually be similar to the spider gene. So stargazing, wobbling, things like that. Those are the minor effects when it comes to the enigma gene. It could be anything like that To They'll see them just walking in circles in okay. their tank. Yeah, um, and they are extremely susceptible to high stress. So anything like even transporting them could actually kill them because uh, they're prone to, on the extreme end of things, random seizures. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's nicknamed the death roll, and it can kill them. It's Again, people breed it out because they can make things look really nice, but it's such a risk. And, it's, and those... Um seizures and and all the other problems they they occur naturally or is is it's uh, like sorry not ra uh, naturally but randomly mm. or uh, is it a specific age that it starts happening or how does it work it can be literally out of nowhere as far as far as i'm aware don't take me as an absolute expert on the thing i've done a fair bit of research into it because i've been into leopard geckos for about just over a decade now okay. uh, i've talked to a lot of breeders it's it can be random again high stress can make it worse but they get stressed super easy so even transportation uh too many crickets in with the gecko at one feeding anything like that that can cause stress or it's out of nowhere and i i've fallen victim to it myself uh i i've had an enigma jungle baby before uh the jungle is my favorite gene to have in a leopard gecko it causes phenomenal patterns are beautiful okay. but i had an Google and hold on jungle yeah jungle so it's, it's just unique patterns they're random which i love so if you have okay. a jungle combined with something else they can look again very unique so you don't see two that really look the same okay very cool which is why i like them um but i followed it for myself i had a baby she was he was maybe five six months old and again he just passed away he had the enigma yeah so the i didn't enigma. yeah so <laughs> at first i actually didn't know that when i first got him i didn't know uh that he had enigma found out he did uh got a little concerned but didn't i already had him i'm not going to let him go right. so i did what i could to to prevent any kind of stress level but again it's just it, it happens okay right. and it's very sad and people breed it out because again they can make lungs look really nice without really realizing that a lot the neurological effect it has on all of these animals very cool. So I've, I've got a bit of a problem. People brought the, the, the Enigma gene. I, it's it's not responsible, in my opinion. Of course not. Uh, Why would you breed something that, I mean, you're breeding an animal and sending it to death 100%. Yeah, I, I just, I picture it as a breeder who's looking out. There's a lot of very good breeders out there, but there are some who just in it for the money, like with any animal. And I just picture somebody out breeding out an Enigma, even like the Enigma jungle that I had. Gorgeous. Giving it to some nine-year-old kid looking for his first reptile. Him going in two months later and just finding it passed away, thinking he did something wrong. Like, have the majority of the time you did nothing wrong. It's just, it's the gene. It's how it is.
Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of that one. No, 100%. No, that makes mm -hmm. sense. All right, let me ask you about the um, the lemon frost then, because I read an article a few mm -hmm. months ago about it um, that all of the all the all the geckos that have a lemon frost gene are are getting tumors, and apparently yep. these tumors are helping um, in research with ca uh, cancer in humans. Do you do you know anything about this? I I yeah. So it's. I'm really back and forth on it because I see, looking at it a purely logical way, I can see the benefits of having it in the scientific community when it comes to research, but when it comes to especially breeding for the general public, I don't support it at all. Uh, again, they are extremely prone to both internal and external tumors. They are okay. striking. I don't know if you've seen a photo of them. They are like a high yellow with a black tail. They're absolutely gorgeous. I have but they're beautiful. Yeah, their average lifespan is two to three years. Wow. Okay. That's just enough time for it to reach maturity, essentially. Just enough time for them to breed them before they, yeah. That's basically what it is, and because of that, people will charge. You can't breed a ton of them because you don't have it for very long, so people will charge several hundred dollars a baby. Okay. Uh, again, I can see the benefits when it comes to the scientific community and research. I don't fully support it, but I can see the benefits of it. Right. When it comes to breeding for general public or the hobby in general, I, I don't find I don't it. See it. I don't. I don't see the purpose in it. Of course you not. can. Yeah, you can get a high yellow with a thousand other. Look at a ton of other genes. The black tail is a bit more unique, but you know, black knights. Uh, that morph has come a long way. It's a bit newer when it comes to being well known. But now they're trying to breed it out with other genes, and you can start getting that that specific black, uh, that black coloration where you want it. So then, like a black tail is becoming much more realistic the last couple of years. I see no reason why anyone, even if you wanted that yellow body, black tail, you don't, you don't need a lemon frost. I don't, I don't see the reasons behind it. Eventually, someone will, yeah, no, hundred percent. Eventually, someone yeah. will read that, and hey, it could be you. Um, Maybe one day. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully. Is, uh, what about other morphs? Is there any other morphs with similar problems, like the lemon frost and the enigma? Uh, the white and yellow uh, has a relative. It's a, it's similar to the enigma, but not to the extent they they can do the, the wobble. They kind of they have stargaze sometimes. Um, they're not prone to the seizures as much, uh, which is good. But one of the issues is that white and yellow is, again, a dominant gene. So people breed them like mad because they are gorgeous. And so the inbreeding doesn't help when it comes to that. So they're a neurological problem. You, you can get one, and you can have with no problems for 20 years. You can live a perfectly happy life, no problems at all. Uh, white and yellow? Yeah, white and yellow. I myself have dealt with quite a few of them. And I've, I haven't seen a... Yeah, white and yellows, and not here. I haven't. I haven't bred them. I have never. I've never owned one, but I've dealt with quite a few. And you can have one with no problems whatsoever. But if you have one with, say, stargazing, uh, they are prone again walking in circles. Which ones are true white and yellow? Uh, top left is a pretty good example. This one right here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very it's a very good looking animal. For sure, but yes. again, they they have they do technically have that neurological issue, similar to the enigma, but not to the extent. Where should you get with one of these guys? The stargazing, wobbling, sometimes the walking in circles. Uh, but when it comes to that, it, it's really dependent on where you get it. I, I'm not I'm not going to say avoid them because if you go to a responsible breeder, you're you're probably going to be okay. A lot of it comes from inbreeding because they are beautiful. People sell them for a lot of money, so they just breed, breed, breed like there's no tomorrow. And that's where the problems can start to come out. Agreed. 
Yeah, so you find a responsible breeder, you can get one of these guys, and you can you can have it for two decades, no problem. Very cool. Um, other thing, the 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 blade, mm, any kind of blizzard, like a blazing blizzard, sometimes can have some problems, like a like a skin problem, because uh, they have very little pigmentation. And the blizzards are um, the full white with the black spots on them. So it's a super snow. Uh, a blazing blizzard essentially looks pink. Oh. Until it gets a bit older. Again, that one, just be careful when it comes to heat bulbs because you their their skin is a bit more sensitive, especially when they're babies. Those are the ones so, that look like aliens, right? They do weirdly look like an alien. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. So just be careful with the high temperatures because they're susceptible to be being burnt when they're babies. Okay. Uh, the super snow really comes down to the inbreeding. That's a huge, huge. They I think probably worse than any other gene. Or morph are are damaged by inbreeding a lot because they're extremely striking. If you have a low a row of leopard geckos and you have one super snow, you'll see it right away. So you're, pure so, white black spots. So in leopard geckos, you uh, you're really starting to see the effects of inbreeding already. I guess you guys are like ten, mm. maybe even like 20, 30 years ahead of crested gecko breeders. So oh, absolutely, probably looking, we're probably looking at the future in leopard geckos. Absolutely. Well, leopard geckos have been more Bread known much longer. Yeah. Yeah, they've been bred. I think they were probably starting to be bred back when Cresties were still thought to be extinct. Like it, they definitely were. Yeah, exactly. Cresties so were, yeah, 1994, I believe. Yeah, so they just they have years on Cresties. Cresties yeah. will get them, I'm sure. But like with how, how popular they are, they'll be there in no time. But stuff like a super snow again, because you can see it right away. You can have 30 leopard geckos in a row, and you have one super snow. It's the first thing people are going to see. There's no yellow. There's no traditional leopard gecko colors. It's pure white, black. It just spots. stands out. Yeah. Yeah, and you see it immediately, and they're gorgeous. As someone who owns two Dalmatians, I'm a big fan of white with black spots. Big yeah, fan of that. Uh, even even my, my, my fat tail, you've met white with black. I, I like I like the color combination a lot. It's uh, a nice one, but not at the cost of the, the gecko's health. Yeah, and again, this goes back to why I said white and yellows. You find a responsible breeder who keeps genes apart, no inbreeding whatsoever kind of thing. And you can have one with no problems whatsoever. But if yeah. you go to anywhere... Anything big. Any random breeder on Kijiji. Like a yeah, random Kijiji breeder kind of thing. They've bred so many. And actually, one of the biggest problems is that to get that super snow, like that perfect super snow look, a lot of people breed them with enigmas to get that pale coloration. And so, again, the enigma is a dominant gene that's going to pass over to the babies. Okay. So the super snows can have occasionally a neurological problem, but it's the inbreeding that's a huge problem with them. Uh, you can have facial deformities. You'll see weird looking. They'll get like kinked spines a lot of the time. Uh, they, they won't eat. You'll see that they just they just have no drive to eat whatsoever. So they're usually very anorexic. Okay. Uh, signs of breeders to avoid, basically. Again, you go to a good breeder. You can have one with no problems. They'll probably let you meet the parents. They'll tell you about the lineage that they've been doing it for a while, and you can have with no issues whatsoever. Same thing goes with uh, giants. Giants are starting to become really popular now. Because who doesn't want a beardy-sized leopard gecko? I do. I really do. I'm they're probably going to get big. one. Maybe not quite that big, but they're they're very large. They're much okay. bigger than, than your traditional leopard gecko. They're about twice the size. Wow. I, I'm i going to be having one at some point. I'm sure I will. There's something so unique. Uh, it's probably four years now they've started to get a bit more popular. But, again, watch out for what breeders are going to. A lot of them overfeed their giants to make them look bigger and bigger because they can sell them for more money, but then you're buying an obese leopard gecko that can have a heart problem. Yeah. 
Do we have any breeders in Canada? I haven't, I haven't even heard of this. Uh, there's a couple. There, there's not many. There's it's predominantly the states. If you want to get one, like I'm probably gonna have to drive down to the states to get one. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, but again, just common sense. If you go to a breeder and that giant looks like a peach, don't get him. Like, it, just you watch out for obesity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, if you can roll him over and you can't get back like a turtle, it's a problem. Yeah. Okay. So avoid that. <laughs> Uh, for the most part, they're going to be fine, but just keep an eye out for obesity because people, again, the bigger they are, the more they can sell them for because it's a giant. So uh, this topic is actually a great segue mm -hmm. um, to the whole rescue and rehabilitation topic. So uh, yeah. have you? what species besides leopard geckos have you rescued uh, in the past? Uh, so I got a fair bit, of, fair bit of leopard geckos, primarily what I was focused on for with, uh, rescuing specifically. I've done, I brought a rescue knobtail, who actually I still have, I ended up keeping him, I couldn't let him go. He was just, he's so mean, he's super mean, <laughs> and he yells all the time, but I love him to death, like he's great. Uh, I, couldn't, awesome. I couldn't let go of him, I, I really couldn't. After bringing him back, I just, I had to keep him. Uh, actually my fat tail, he met, same deal. Uh, very skinny, didn't eat at all, was having to have uh, showing signs of NBD because she wouldn't eat anything, and so, so you can take any calcium. Okay, can you talk on MBD a little bit? So it stands for metabolic bone disease, right? Yeah, yeah, it and, does. and how common is it in leopard geckos or fat tails or the knob tails, like in geckos in general? So it's, it's not so, it doesn't really, it doesn't come in through breeding, right? It's entirely to do with their care. And their diets. And their diet. That's why I love having the UVB for my leopard geckos. And also, you mentioned fat tails. My every fat tail I've ever had, all UVB. My knob tail also has UVB. Anything that's not nocturnal, so crepuscular or diurnal, they have UVB. That's the way I see it, and it helps them process that calcium that they take even better, which helps prevent stuff like MBD. Right. Um, so when it comes to feeders, uh, crickets are super big. Super worms are, or giant mealworms, whatever you want to call them. They're used a lot, but their their shells are really high in phosphorus, which actually takes away the, from the amount of calcium that they're getting from that animal. Interesting. So they have about like it's I think it's a two to one ratio of phosphorus to calcium. So every time your gecko is eating a cricket or a superworm or a mealworm, uh, mealworms is a separate problem we can talk about. I'm not a fan of them at all. Um, superworms are more acceptable to me, uh, but again, they're high in phosphorus. Every time you're feeding one without that calcium coating, they're losing calcium. It's mealworms that you're not okay with. Yeah, yeah. So they have a lot of chitin. That's okay. what their shell is made out of. Superworms have two, but it's much more of a different ratio because superworms are so small. Uh, chitin, enough Mealworms of it can act. Yeah, mealworms are tiny, right? Right. And so pr half of what the gecko is eating is 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 shell, not meat, or okay, that whatever, makes sense. whatever you yeah. want to call bug meat, protein. We'll say protein. Protein. Yeah. I don't know what bug meat's called. Um, and so enough chitin, it can impact a stomach like sand can. So, so I, I have, I, I, I give everything here and there. Mealworms, I'll give like once a month. I'll give something because so they're small. They move around. It gives my gecko something to chase. Okay. Um, but for the most part, superworms, crickets, big one, high in phosphorus, low in calcium. That's why they always say calcium dust your crickets. So you don't lose that, that, that calcium level. You don't gain calcium. A lot of people think that your gecko is gaining calcium. They're not. You're actually just, you're, you're preventing loss. You're cutting even. You're balancing it out. Basically, that's why so super loading. You... No, sorry. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. That's why super loading is so important. Uh, so super loading, Rapashi again has an, an awesome one. I have two bottles of it beside me here. Um, if and you, you have give it right it, inside, you hold it up. 
Um, no, no, if, okay, if it's that far, never mind. No, it's right here. We're okay, good. Cool. Yeah. That guy right there. Okay. Oh, there we go. So that's super low. You can give it either as a powder or if you want to make it into a gel, you can just add boiling water, let it dry. Uh, give it most of them with you, the day before you feed, give it to your uh, the cricket or the superworm. They'll eat it. And then you dust it. So again, you have that dusting to prevent loss. So now you're cutting even. So you're not you're not losing anything. But you're not gaining anything. Uh, once you have the super load, it it literally overloads the insect with calcium, uh, vitamins, minerals, everything that they need. But that's why you have to give it the day before because if you wait too long, the the insect will actually die because they're over you overload their system. So that's how they gain. That's how the gecko gains the calcium. Yeah, that's so they go from losing, then you add calcium dusting. Now you're cutting even, but you're not gaining. Now you're gaining. Now you're gaining because of the super load. And again, that UVB helps them process all of that much better. So it helps prevent stuff like again MBD. Going back to what we're talking about. Um, so it's it's MBD is very easy to prevent. Just have UVB. Um, whether it's 10.0, 5.0, I use 10.0. Uh, Zoomed, Reptisun is what I use okay. for my guys. Again, that UVB will help them prevent. Will help them cycle that calcium through their body. Make sure that you're not doing anything to make them lose calcium. So adding calcium, gut loading is beneficial. And How long do you leave the UVB on for? Uh, I leave it on about eight hours a day. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't go overboard. Again, crepuscular, so they come out down in dusk. So I don't tend to like to have it on while they want to roam. Okay. Because uh, they. And do you won't. do it four hours? Four hours, or do you do it eight hours in one go? Uh, it depends on the season, actually. In the uh, summer, when it's hotter, I just do eight hours straight. Okay. In the winter, they're more picky with when they come out, at least where we are, right? We're, we're in Ontario, so right. nice and cold. My guys don't like to come out a whole ton during the winter. For sure. Um, so I do kind of four hours on, four hours off, and I do that in a, in a different way. So eight hours during the day in the summer. So again, I said that I don't like to have it on when they're out and about roaming. So again, I'll have that foot or their nose or something will be out and that's how I'm absorbing it. In the winter, I switch it to about four hours more when they're out, like sequencing with their dawn and dusk habits. So I make sure they're getting it. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I do. Okay. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. That's a, yeah, that's a good way to think about it because that's when they're getting it in the wild too, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So in the winter especially, I want to have that assurance that they're getting it. Yeah, Very but cool. MBD is super easy to avoid. Super just. A little bit of maintenance and you're good. Okay. Yeah. And then once you have a reptile that comes in with MPT, how hard is it to bring them back to good enough to be a pet again or good enough to Yeah, that that's yeah. that's where it gets a bit more it can get a bit more complicated, depends on the situation. Uh I've had one before that I just I couldn't bring back. Uh, I've had one and it passed away unfortunately under my care. I just it was to the point where he couldn't use his front legs at all. Like they were just like sticks. They dragged along behind them. Wow. Um, but when it comes to recovering from it, so most calcium supplements you see have D3 added into it because D3 is very good for them. That D3 is what helps them when it comes to UVB. The UVB and the D3 work together to help process that calcium. 100%. Uh, so what I do, you can't give too much D, you can overload uh, or I guess overdose on D3, you can give them too much vitamin D and it can be bad for them. Calcium, you you cannot physically give too much. So anything excess, they'll pee away. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I'll so get a calcium. talking about like the Rapashi calcium low D, for example. The no D. No, the no D. D. It's just, yeah, it's pure calcium. There's nothing else into it. And I just feed, I, I don't feed it to them, obviously, but I leave a little bowl of it out. They'll lick it up as they, uh, sometimes, sometimes they'll go lick it up. 
um, I put it on everything. If I give them uh, Grub Pie Rapashi, which I like to try and get my guys onto, or if I if I syringe feed the the Rapashi and I leave it as like more of a like a paste and don't do the traditional gel, uh, I just I put a fair bit of it into it because anything that they're taking in, anything excess is not going to damage them; they'll go away. So that way, I know they're getting as much calcium in them safely as possible. Uh, so I'll add it into the Rapashi. I put on everything. I leave a little bowl of it out. You can actually get uh, a liquid calcium. Until recently, Zilla made a pretty good one. I can't seem to find it anymore. I don't know if it's not available in Canada. Any yeah, I don't know what's going on. I know Canada has new restrictions with that. Like That's why we can't get the meat pie by Rapashi anymore because they switched to, from squid to chicken. Yeah. Canada's so you can still get the grub pie though, right? You can still get the grub pie, yeah. But I, I'm trying to find a new one. Uh, you can get like a liquid calcium additive to put it into their water. Okay. So basically, whenever if someone comes to the MBD on top of regular, like you have to make sure they get to D three so they can process everything properly. Make sure that have UVB, but add any excess calcium that you can. So whether it's in their water, their food, in rapashi, if you're getting rapashi. How long does it take usually? I know it can differ with every animal. But roughly it really, yeah, it really depends. Uh, longest I've had, I had one for eight months. Yeah, it took eight months to get them back to like standard pet care. Sometimes they're never going to be perfect again, but they'll be they'll be okay. They'll be like they'll be able to live a healthy life. Okay, but and it's not it's not hundred percent every time, depending how bad the situation is. Definitely, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And would you say MBD and um and that kind of like would you say MBD is your biggest challenge, or is there something else that you, that could that the rescue animals could come in with uh, that's worse than MBD? MBD is definitely up there. Um, abscesses can be quite the problem. Uh, I find a lot of animals who are in sand, things like that, can actually get abscesses uh, along their mouth. So what happens if they ever get a little cut or they eat a cricket and the cricket bites like the tip of their lip right there, sand gets in and can cause an infection. Just, yeah. Um, yeah, and cause, again, it's not it's not only sand, that's just as an example. It can be caused by a variety of reasons. Uh, but abscesses along the mouth, I've seen quite a few times. They're not... They can be a little... I don't remove them myself. I can. I've done it before. I really don't like doing it. It's a little risky. At least for me, I'm not trained. So I've done it depending how big it is. So an abscess is made of pus, right? And pus in a reptile is not a liquid. Fun. It's a solid. Yeah. Yeah, a ton of fun. It's just it's great. It's a solid. Yeah, so it's like a rock in their mouth. Okay. Great. So it can... It can if it gets big enough, it can really get in the way of them even eating or drinking water. Uh, so... Uh, not necessarily cut it. So they actually use like it's like a dental tool, like a dental hook, because there's going to be a, no, an opening in the mouth from what started it. So they they stick uh, the dental tool in there and they just pop it out, and eventually there'll be like a little bit of a sac there. It'll get absorbed eventually. It'll go back to normal. Uh, so abscesses I've had some problems with, but that's it's pretty fixable. MBD is probably the worst. Okay. Um, anorexia is one. I was uh, say, leopard it's probably, they probably come in very yeah. skinny all the time. Huh? Yeah, they, they can for sure, for sure. Uh, and problem with an anorexic leopard gecko sometimes it's that they don't want to eat after that. They it's really difficult to get them back on food. Yeah, whether you're force feeding, which you might have to do for a while, which I avoid because it's so stressful for the animal and for me, it's not fun. No, I bet. Yeah, um, yeah, anorexia, MBD, and probably abscesses are probably top three for me. Top top. Yeah. Top three worst, worst. Top three uh, worst things to deal with. Okay. I don't want to, don't want, don't want to make it sound positive. It's terrible, but no, hundred percent. Yeah. And then, is it tough to find homes for the animals once they are uh, back to like standard pet care, or 
-hmm. like once people find out that this animal was a rescue or whatever or do pe are people generally happy to adopt so I, I'm really I'm really lucky in the way that I still have a great relationship with a pet store that we used to work at um, and I know a couple different rescues so I always have somewhere to go to once the animal's good to go I can go like a dot dot out through a rescue or if it's in perfect pet care I, I'll yeah I'll give it off to uh, the pet store we used to work at and they'll sell it for nice and cheap just so I can find a new home uh, so I'm, I'm really fortunate that I have options when it comes to adopting out the animal definitely and yeah. Have you ever kept any of them besides the knobtail? Uh, oh, the African fattail? Yeah, my fattail I kept, the knobtail I kept. Um, I've never kept a loo. I If I kept all the ones that I ended up loving, I would have like 30 lumber geckos. I, Nothing wrong with that. Uh, my, hydro <laughs> bill, my hydro bill begs to differ. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's a lot to manage. There's one. No, there's one that came really close. I, I had a really hard time letting that one go. It's one I had for eight months, the, the, the long one there. Okay. I had a really uh, a tough time letting that one go. But when it comes to leopard geckos, I actually I have never kept one, surprisingly enough. Not yet. I'm sure, I'm sure eventually I'll, I'll end up keeping one. Someday but... it'll happen. <laughs> yeah, probably. Awesome. Hmm. Okay, uh, so we're getting round about to the 45-minute mark, which is usually where I like to stop. But okay. I can't let you go without asking about your experiences herping in Brazil. Um, so can you very briefly tell us uh, how old were you and how long or like how old were you when you were living there and whereabouts in Brazil mm -hmm. you were living? So I lived in Brazil twice. First time I was four to seven years old. That's where I first kind of got into reptiles. Okay. Uh, it was actually really weird. I was terrified of them. When I was a little kid, like four or five, I was so scared of them. Okay. So I started to research them to figure out how to avoid them. I didn't want to go near them, anywhere near them in a while. So your and love for reptiles started by learning about them to avoid them. Yeah, and then I started to learn about them, how to go find them, because I ended up loving them. Okay. Um, and when I was seven, I left. I moved to China for four years. Well, I did I, I did a summer herping in China, but it's not as eventful as Brazil. Right. I moved back when I was 11 until I was about 13, 14. Okay. And that's where I got really into the uh, going out and herping in the wild for them. When you were you, yeah. so you were 11 to 14. You were living there. Uh, the second time. The second time. Okay. The second time. Yeah. Yeah. Um. There. And at that point, I was in Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. Uh, Brazil. Yeah. The first time I was there, I was in Brasilia. Probably a better place for herping. A much smaller city. Sao Paulo has more access to places though. So, uh, herping there is a lot of fun. You don't do it in the city. There's nothing in the city to find. It's polluted. There's so many people. Uh, but take like a 45 minute drive, and, and you can. It's amazing what you'll find. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, I do want to ask you what kind of species you found mm -hmm. before we get into that. Yep. Did you ever see any dart frogs? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes. Okay. They're not you super know, common. It's, it's, no, again, they're not? The, no, the, it depends where you are. The closer the city you are, it's polluted. They don't want to be there. Being amphibians, it could damage their skin. Of course. Uh, it depends where you go. The, there's a, a Pada. Pada is the name of a province. It's the Pada province there. And there is, is dart fog galore. It's um, a, you, see, you see Azurus fairly commonly. The Azurus yeah, are pretty easy okay. to find. I was just about to ask you if you remember what species you saw. Okay. Yeah. So not all of them. I was younger, right? But Azurus, they're they're easy to find. Bright blue, like you're gonna see it. Uh, there's one okay, called so yeah. There's one called the Brazilian nut dart frog that you could find. I've never seen it here. Never seen it for sale. Never seen a captive bred. But I, down there, they're they're awesome. They're like a they're like a it's like a black with dark brown patterning. Okay. Um, there, I saw cobalts with the bite, the bright red, yeah. yellow heads. Wow. I, I'm trying to think of what else I saw. I don't remember all of them. I'm not gonna lie. You I was, a little, I wasn't. 
Oyopox, Santa Isabel's, any There's a good chance I saw Oyopox when I thought they were Cobalts for a second. I wasn't as into Dart Frogs back then. I was really more focused on the Lizards and the Snakes, so that's what I was aiming towards. Okay. Uh, I've gotten into Dart Frogs a lot more as I got a little older, but for the most part, I was I was aiming for reptiles, not so much amphibians. Okay, in that case, tell me what reptiles, what species of reptiles did you find? And I don't oh, know, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, tell me what species you found. Uh, so so many, a lot of different anole species. Uh, when it comes to snakes, they have a couple different rat snakes. Snakes specifically it was really iffy when he found one because he had to literally look at it before he tried to pick it up, make sure you know where it is. A lot of rule species thumb. in the area, yes? There's a fair bit. Yeah. Um, rule of thumb with any reptile down there, if you ever go down there, if you don't know what it is, don't touch it. Like, don't even try. Don't don't think that like it doesn't have this patterning, it doesn't have that thick head, so it's not going to be venomous. Don't risk it. They they have southern corals down there that don't that it doesn't it looks like a milk snake. Like unless you know what it is, don't touch it. Okay. Uh, that being said, I've handled a fair bit of venomous species. Uh, I had again that privilege. One of my best friends, his dad was a herpetologist. So I would go out with him, and he'd let us hold. He, he was a bit picky. But again, I was a little younger, right? So I went out with him. Eventually, he showed us all the good spots. Started going out on my own with my friends. I mean, he's um, not gonna throw a bushmaster in your hands, but I'm getting to the bushmaster. That's that's my next thing. Yeah. Uh, I found one. I found one. I hated it. I hated every moment of it. I think I we've talked about this before in person. Uh, I yeah, love going yeah. into caves. Caving is a lot of fun, especially down there. They're massive. They're intricate. Super cool. Don't go in if you don't know what you're doing. Because you'll never leave. A lot of bats. A lot, a lot, a lot of bats. And the thing is, a lot of reptiles didn't like to go into the caves. You can, you can find some snakes, things like that, but a lot of the, the, the ones that you have to worry about, the, the little thumb, like the Bushmaster, you didn't find in the caves a whole lot. Okay. Um, and the Bushmaster was probably the one I was most scared of. More than any other snake. It real, now that I look For back at reason. it. Yeah, now, now that I look back at it, maybe the Fairland should have been like my main concern because that bites way more people and is just as potent. Um, okay. But the Bushmaster always scared me when I was a kid. When I was there, what's the other species? The Fair de Lance. Okay. Yeah, they're they're not big. They get like three feet, maybe four, but like that's really stretching it. Okay. And they bite more people than any other snake in South America. Like they and they're su they're extremely potent venom. It's that's quite the because problem. they're more common in areas where there are people than any other snake. You can find them in like parks. Uh, but a big part of it is because they're so small, you don't see them. People step right near them all the time without realizing, and then out of fear, they just strike, right? 100%. Uh, but Bushmasters, at the time, was like, they're, they're such a giant venomous snake. I don't want to mess with that. Uh, so we, would go, we went over to one of these caves, and in my head, like, we're in a cave, we're not going to see a Bushmaster. Like, that was always what was in my head, like, avoid the Bushmaster. I would, I would handle any other reptile that I found. It doesn't matter how big, I have been bit by a fair few lizards and snakes. Uh, a lot of the bigger lizards, uh, tegus. I got I got napped by a tegu once. A lot of tegus walking around there. Yeah. Uh, depending where you are. Yeah. Again, again, something like Sao Paulo, they don't go there. But a lot of the smaller cities, yeah, they're they're going to be around. A lot of people think tegu, Argentina, but they're everywhere down there. Okay. Uh, I got nipped by a tegu. Uh, the bushmaster always scared me the most. No matter what, I was never going to handle one. I wasn't even even if a professional handed handed it to me holding the head. But no, there's not a chance. Okay. Uh, and then I found one. I only ever found one, and it was in the cave where I thought it wouldn't be. I was so positive. We got in the cave. It's not going to be in there. We're good. And then uh, they rattle, right? It's not a rattlesnake, but it's like they have like that whipping sound. Like, have you ever heard of the angry corn snake? It's, it's like that. I've heard the sound of the – I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like that – like the – like the. it's hard to say. It's like a whip. 
Okay. And that's what they do when they're upset. And we were in there and we started hearing this weird noise. And we're like, what's that? And it's weird because you're in a case that was echoing, right? It was loud. And then we had the flashlights. So we're looking around and maybe five, six feet away from me, there was a Bushmaster all coiled up. And I'm like, nope, left. Never went back to that cave again. I was Ready to gone. Attack. That was gone immediately. I didn't even look back at my friends. I left. Like, <laughs> it's just gone. Nope. Good luck, guys. Every man for himself. I, I see a Bushmaster. I'm leaving. It's not. Uh, it's hilarious. Oh, yeah. I'm gone. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I was got. I looked back, and my friends haven't even left the cave yet. And they're just looking at me like, "You left?" I'm like, "Yeah, I left." You get oh, of course. <laughs> Self preservation. I was so close to that thing. Okay. okay. Yeah, so that's my bushmaster story. <laughs> that's that's a very cool story. Um, yeah. What about what about any um, any caimans? Any I know the speckled caiman I believe lives down there as well. Uh, so caimans aren't aren't super uncommon. Uh, something like the black caiman is a bit harder to find. Those are the big ones, right? Okay. Uh, for them, you really have to go looking for them. You have to go out in like where there's nobody. Um, it's usually, usually like you're setting out for a weekend. You're going out to a boat. You're going in the middle of nowhere. You're going to try and find one of these, and even then, there's no guarantee. Something like the speckled, uh, speckled caiman, that get like four or five feet long. Right. They're they're like squirrels down there. This. Oh yeah. Every everywhere, they're all over the place, and they're terrified of people. Okay. Uh, because they're so small. Yeah, well, four feet. When it comes to crocodilians, small, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, when it comes to crocodilians, it's pretty small. And yeah, no, they're. I've handled a fair few. Okay. Handled a fair few of them. They're for the most part, you walk towards them, they're gone. Yeah, they just. Uh, but yeah, water, like. they are all over the place. If you're fishing, they'll come for your fish, and sometimes you'll get like during breeding season, kind of like moose up here during rutting season. You just don't go near them at all. Again, down there during breeding season, you yeah, go those, those big males who are challenging themselves. They get super aggressive. Do you ever see than, like two males fighting each other? I never saw them fighting, but I, um, you could hear like a what's it called? Like that gargle they do right. when they're like a U shape under the water. You see videos of uh, American alligators doing it, and they're like belching underwater. Yeah, you can hear it's it. It's called like bellowing or, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you yeah, can hear yeah, it. Yeah. You can hear it if you're near the river and it's completely quiet. You can hear it. Which is super cool. It means don't go there, but you can hear it. <laughs> yeah, just don't, don't go in the there. other direction. Yeah, you don't. Uh, even if it's not huge, that's a four foot lizard with sharp teeth. Like, you know, 100%. if it's angry, I'm not. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah, but really cool place to grow up being into reptiles, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I bet. I bet. A lot of. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I would love to take a trip down there one day. Like, yeah, high, I, high up on the bucket list there and oh, the so I was I was planning on going back uh, December of last year, but with, with COVID and everything, you just couldn't. Right, right. Yeah, but such a cool country, especially again reptile-wise. Yeah, and amphibian-wise uh, too, man. Oh, all over the place. Oh, They're even, everywhere. Even, even mammals, like just animal-wise in general. Like, yeah, like, uh, people don't think you can find salamanders down there. Dart frogs, depending where you are, you can go find them. Don't touch them. Obviously, that goes without saying. You can touch them, just. Only wash once. your hands. Don't, don't, <laughs> only once. No, just don't need them. And wash your hands. Like, yeah, I, I, uh, I had the misfortune of touching it once. I didn't know it was there. I put my hand down on a branch and I grazed it a little bit. Not fun feeling. No, I bet, yeah. To this I, day, I, I don't know what species it was. It was brown and I saw it jumping away. I have no idea what species it is. Not a clue. Okay. But well, you're alive now, so... Uh, clearly, yeah, I'm you're fine. Okay. It's, okay. It clearly wasn't like one of the high potent ones, but yeah. it was still wasn't, wasn't a ton of fun. But even then, like, if you want to get to that peak of herping, go go find an anaconda. Like, right? Yeah. Bring somebody. Do not go by yourself. Did I did. You? I, yeah. 
I, I had, when it comes to the wild, this is when I was a little older down, like when I was 13, 14, a little bit bigger. Um, I had caught a couple small ones, like some babies. And even babies, like they're bigger than adult bipod. Like, yeah, 100%. yeah, like so. I had catch babies. Uh, when it comes to the adults, I had seen them be caught. I never caught it myself. Uh, I have a photo somewhere again. My, my friend's dad, there was a herpetologist. He brought us out to go find like a female, like a big female. He ended up catching it with a couple guys that he had because it's not a one man process. Of course not. And then like, I, so I got to hold part of the body. Of the big, big ones, but I never even attempted. Like, I wouldn't even try. Even to this day, I don't know if I'd even try catching an no, adult without so. somebody there with me. Like, you need a good team with you. Yeah, that's a big animal. That's oh, super strong. Yeah, I, awesome. I always tried finding a, a yellow. I never could. Because uh, the, there's three species of anaconda, the green, the black, and the yellow. And I always yeah. tried finding the yellow. They're not – they're much smaller. But they're harder to find, but they're gorgeous. I always tried. I never found one. But maybe one day. Maybe one day. That's we'll very see. cool. Maybe, maybe when I go back. I'll give it a try. Very, very cool. I mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would absolutely love to go down there, go herping down there. Even just, yeah, absolutely. It's something else. Super cool. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to wrap up the episode here then. Uh, cool. Thank you very much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. It's can fun. you let everybody know where they can find you on social media? Uh, yeah, Instagram at Bird's Eye Herping. Uh, see it right there? Yes, I'll so, go oh, right there and I'll put the yeah. links to it in my... Yeah, it's, it's right it's right underneath my face. That's the best. Yeah, that's where you can find me. So if you're watching this, have any problems with what I said, shoot me a message. <laughs> like, more than happy to talk. But yeah, that's, that's where you can find me if you ever want to. Awesome. Thank you very yeah. much once again for coming on, man. Thanks a lot. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. All right, that was episode six of Daffy's Roundtable. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, that was Derek from Bird's Eye Herping. I'll put all of his information in the show notes. Um, I'll also put all the pictures that we discussed of all the leopard gecko morphs in the show notes, as well as all my information. I am Daffy's Reptiles on Instagram and YouTube. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.